0: This is Scott, host of the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast and black author. You could get all three of my books. My first book, Systematic Racism and Capitalism, Alliance of Oppression. My second book, Hypocrisy in America, The Veil of White Supremacy. And my third book, my first novel, Exodus 2035, all available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can download the Kindle app to your smartphone or tablet, and you can access those products. Thanks for listening.
1: Um, don't forget U and U Network. You can find that on Instagram, U and U underscore Network, where you can find all the shows uh, under
0: the U and U Network. Shout out to the U and U Network. You know what I'm saying? And all those podcasts that's on U and U Network. Thank for the U and U Network that has brothers at U and U Network. You can check out the socials at U A N D U. Underscore network.
2: On WJZ, the mother of the suspected extremist behind an attack on power substations across Baltimore is breaking her silence. What she says about her daughter and the foiled plot. Hello everybody, I'm Denise Cope. And I'm
3: Vic Carter. Welcome to those of you watching on CBS News Baltimore and on WJZ TV. The FBI spent months monitoring two suspects with neo-Nazi ties as they plan an armed attack on critical power substations.
2: Well, tonight we begin with a revealing interview with the mother of Sarah Clendaniel, who faces decades in prison if convicted. Federal prosecutors say Clendaniel and a friend wanted to destroy the power grid and plunge Baltimore into chaos. They say the plot was fueled by racially motivated hatred.
3: WJC investigator Mike Helgen is live in Cecil County, where Clendaniel grew up. He has her mother's first television interview. Mike. Vic Denise, the U.S. attorney says if this plot had become reality, it would have been catastrophic and life-threatening for people in our area. Now, her mother tells me she spent time with her daughter over the holidays. She knew about her extremist views, but never suspected this plot.
2: Unless there's a miracle, she'll most likely die in prison.
3: For the first time, Lynette Clendaniel is speaking publicly about her daughter Sarah who prosecutors described as a neo-Nazi who was plotting to blow up the power grid in the Baltimore area.
2: Our views are are different and she know what I believed, and I knew what she believed and you know, we just didn't discuss
3: that. Are you shocked?
2: That. So, no, I'm not.
3: Would you say that she's a Nazi or neo-Nazi, that it's true that she held those views? Yes, yeah, she definitely held those views. Is there anything, did you try to reason with her or or talk to her about it?
2: My philosophy to everyone in the world is watch Independence Day and get a grip. We all live on this planet together. You better get along.
3: She says Sarah, who grew up here in Northeast, has had trauma since early childhood and seven years ago served jail time for robbing local convenience stores with a machete to feed a heroin addiction.
2: She really has always had anti-establishment
3: views. She tells us that time behind bars escalated her daughter's extremism. It's also where she met Brandon Russell. Prosecutors say he's the co-founder of Adam Waffen Division, a neo-Nazi organization who recently served prison time for possession of bomb-making materials in Florida.
2: She had mentioned him, but like I said, I didn't discuss her life. She knew I didn't agree with agree with it. So we really didn't go there.
3: Her daughter had been living with a friend in Catonsville. Chilling images and court records show her armed. Prosecutors say she was terminally ill and determined to carry out her plot before she died and was recorded telling an FBI informant, if we can pull off what I'm hoping, this would be legendary.
4: Turn now to some breaking news. CBS News has learned of new online chatter from domestic extremist groups following that recent attack on two electric substations in North Carolina. Some of those posting online are advocating for further attacks on major cities like New York and Washington, D.C. CBS's Mark Strassman is in North Carolina, where the lights are finally coming back on.
5: With two substations in Moore County raked by gunfire, More worrisome than ever, security around America's grid infrastructure. Most concerningly is copycat attacks in the coming
6: weeks against other elements of the grid.
5: Chris Krebs, CBS News cybersecurity expert, has watched threats against America's grid proliferate, like this one posted online hours after the Moore attack. So substations can be easily compromised. Hmm, tell me more. This attacker knew exactly where to hit. And they did it deliberately, and they did it multiple times, and they did it very thoroughly. There's a playbook for it if you're so inclined. Absolutely. There is absolutely a playbook. The Department of Energy reports roughly 70 intentional attacks on electric facilities just this year. CBS News has confirmed recent physical attacks on substations in Oregon and Washington and a series of specific threats in california from domestic violent extremists that will likely remain a threat to the electricity subsector through 2023
0: welcome back to the unprocessed knowledge podcast you can catch this podcast on spotify on google play everybody should be following me on instagram at unprocessed underscore knowledge click the link tree in my bio check out everything i got going on everybody should be following the unu network at you A-N-D-U underscore network. Let's jump right into it. As you heard in the opening clip, white extremist groups for months have been planning and organizing to take down the power grid in specific areas. This is their new why. Here is the plan. There has been an uptick in online chatter amongst white extremist groups for months. Their plan is this. If you take down the power grid in particular areas, wait till the sun goes down and then you can start ambushing black people. That's their plan. I'm telling you this. This isn't blacky black conspiracy talk. This isn't this is real. This is what they're organizing. This is what they're actually doing. You heard it in the opening clip, Curdy of ABC News and CBS News. This is happening. They followed the plan in Baltimore. We'll get to that in a second. It actually happened in North Carolina. It happened in South Carolina. It happened in Oregon. It happened in California. They are attacking the power grids. It's a two-fold plan. Attack the power grid. Take the power down. If it's a area if it's a predominantly black area such as Baltimore, take the power down. Wait till black folks start looting. Because they you know, in the mind of a white extremist, if the power goes down, it's only a matter of time before black folks start looting. Once the power goes down, you know, you camp out by the mall, you camp out by the Nike store, you camp out by the Best Buy, you camp out by the Target. As soon as people start looting, you just shoot as many black people as you can. Or If you're in the Pacific Northwest or South Carolina or North Carolina, you take down the power grid. You wait till sundown and then you just drive around and just start ambushing black people and just start shooting. them. That is their plan. The FBI knows about it. They've been investigating these white extremist groups for months. Black folks be aware. Black folks be careful for everyone's awareness. You may not be aware of how power grid works. If you take down a power grid in the right area, you can knock out the power for an entire city. I'm not exaggerating. The power grid in the United States is very vulnerable and has been vulnerable for a very long time. You may not remember maybe a decade ago, the power grid went down and took down like four or five states. All right, that's how power grids work. One power grid services a very large area. So, if you take if you put a hit on the power grid and take down the right area, you are going to knock down the power for an entire city, maybe even half a state, depending on where you are. And it don't take a whole lot. You just got to walk up to the you just got to walk up <laughs> to the grid and, and start shooting it. That's their plan. Now, in the very opening clip, they talk to the mother of the female who got caught, who was trying to take down the power grid in Baltimore with her white extremist boyfriend. This is the so called leader of Adam Waffen. And I've talked about Adam Waffen before. He's from Florida. He's not from Baltimore. He's from Florida. She's from Baltimore. White folks, I know you're listening. I get your messages on Instagram. I don't respond because I choose not to. But I know you're listening. Here's the issue: Too many of you have family members who have white extremist views, and you protect them. You protect your papa, you protect your me you protect your old redneck cousins, you protect your your parents. Some of y'all even protect your own children. She even said, "Oh, you know, I know, we had different views." You know, we spent Thanksgiving together. You know, I know we think about things kind of differently. No, your daughter is a white supremacist who tried to take down the power grid in Baltimore in the hopes of killing black people in mass numbers. Ultimately, that's the plan. The plan isn't just to knock out the power. The plan is to knock, take the power down. So we have an advantage when it comes to ambushing black people. That's the plan. Ultimately, it's to kill black people in large numbers. That's the plan. But she didn't turn her daughter in. She never told anybody, hey, my daughter is a member of a white white supremacist group. Hey, my daughter has white extremist views. Hey, my daughter is dangerous. Hey, my daughter is capable of not only attacking the power grid of a major metropolitan area, but she's also capable of planning an attack on unassuming innocent black people. She wants them to die. That's the problem we have. You protect the white supremacists in your family. That's the problem. That's the problem. Now, if you want to talk about that, go go ahead and DM me and let me know who they are. Since we're talking about white extremists, Let's move on to the next story.
7: State law bans wearing masks to conceal your identity on government property. So why are Proud Boys allowed to keep doing so? I'm news reporter Kelly Knoyer, and I brought news director Ben Schockman into the studio to talk about it. So, Ben, we have a wild story about legal precedent and the Proud Boys, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I wanted to ask you how you got started on this story.
8: So we first wanted to do this piece as the first installment of our Ask a Journalist initiative, where people write in or call in and ask a a simple question that they need a journalist to track down the answer to.
7: So what was the question?
8: The question was, there's a 1953 law in North Carolina, 18 other states I think all have similar laws, that banned people from wearing masks and hoods on government property to conceal their identity, clearly aimed at the Klan. So in 1953, that law passed. So why, it's still in the books, why are the Proud Boys allowed to still show up on government property?
7: Interesting. So you called New Hanover County first. What did they say?
8: So they confirmed that legislation passed during the pandemic that allowed people to be required to wear masks by local governments doesn't interfere with this. The law clearly says you can wear masks for public health. You can't wear masks on government property to conceal your identity. The county said, we believe the courts would recognize those as two different things.
7: OK, so... That still doesn't really explain why the Proud Boys aren't having any arrests happen. So who did you ask next?
8: Right. It doesn't explain it. So we asked the sheriff's office and they said um, they weren't super familiar with that law, but that they were not going to get into an argument with each individual Proud Boy about the motives for wearing the mask. So then we went to the district attorney and asked uh, Ben David, have you provided any... I don't know, guidance to the sheriff's office, because that's often a thing with law enforcement. They'll go to the district attorney or prosecutor when there's a law that requires some nuance.
7: Okay, so what did District Attorney Ben David say?
8: Well, that's where things got interesting. Ben David said he had actually sent a letter to Sheriff Ed McMahon detailing his legal analysis of the original 1953 law, plus the pandemic era law that allowed people to wear masks for public health. The letter's pretty unequivocal. It's it, it says cut and dry the spirit of the law was to prevent people from intimidating people from going to government meetings. So it's not about who at the meeting is okay with it. The idea is if people are showing up and they're masked for the sake of anonymity, you have to think about who's not going to that meeting because they might feel intimidated. And the other fine point here is that you don't have to commit a crime while wearing a mask. Wearing the mask to conceal your identity is the crime. So that's the gist of the letter that Ben David sent Sheriff Ed McMahon.
7: Yeah, I read it over as well, and it really seemed unequivocal that he thought it was acceptable to bar the Proud Boys from coming into these meetings unless they demasked themselves or to arrest them if they came in while wearing masks, because that is the law. They are not supposed to wear the mask. So once you had that information, what did the sheriff's office say about it?
8: So the timeline here is a little tricky because we first talked to the sheriff's office before Ben David sent this letter. So we wanted to go back after Ben David sent the letter and sort of give them another chance, another crack at this question. And they doubled down. They said they still feel like they are not going to get into what they called the mass debate, even though Ben David's guidance was pretty clear. So a couple things we needed to make clear. One, Ben David is providing guidance. He can't tell the sheriff's office what to do and he can't order them to arrest anyone. And the second thing is that Ben David was pretty clear that this applies to anyone who wears a mask to conceal identity. It's not it would be the same for any group of people who showed up or any individual who showed up.
7: So if a left-wing person came in a, for a protest and was also masked, they could also be arrested for this?
8: Yes. So Ben David's letter doesn't mention the Proud Boys at all. It would apply to anyone who did that. But that's effectively where we were left. Um, state law says you can't wear the mask to conceal your identity. Legal experts agree. The county agrees. The UNC school government agrees. District Attorney Ben David and his office agrees. But The sheriff's office has said we're not going to get involved in that. We're not going to enforce this law.
7: That's really interesting. I know that the local chapter of the Proud Boys is very good at towing the exact letter of the law. So I'm curious about how this will impact their interactions at some of these public meetings.
8: Yeah, I can say up until this point, we've heard them joke about how they're wearing their masks um, for COVID. But they've also explicitly publicly repeatedly said that they are wearing their masks to conceal their identity. Um, They've spoken publicly at public meetings against mask mandates. So it's really clear that they are not wearing it for COVID, which means they are violating the law um, in my amateurish non-legal reading of Ben David's letter. So I will be very curious to see if this changes the interaction between law enforcement and the Proud Boys.
7: All right.
0: Down in North Carolina, the white extremist group, the Proud Boys, they are showing up to local government meetings with masks to intimidate lawmakers and to intimidate other citizens from showing up to the meetings. And that is against the law. They're doing it anyway. Why? The sheriff's office says, even though it's against the law, we're not going to enforce it. We're just going to let them do whatever they want. <laughs> isn't it interesting what laws that law, isn't it interesting that law enforcement can pick and choose what laws they want to enforce? Hmm? A nigger driving on expired plates, they're enforcing that law. A nigger driving with an expired license, they're enforcing that law. If you drive and change lanes without putting on the turn signal, Sandra Bland, they enforcing that law. White extremist groups showing up to the city council meetings in mass to intimidate citizens and lawmakers. Eh, we're not going to enforce that one. You know, we don't want to get into a debate with every single mass where, you know, we're we going to let them do whatever they want to do. This is the sheriff's office telling them we're not going to enforce the law. They told the media this. Like, nope. <laughs> we just going to let them do whatever they want to do. Here's the reason why. The Proud Boys already said they're not wearing that mask because of COVID. Because they think, you know, COVID is like some, some type of left-wing conspiracy. and It don't exist. They said they're wearing those masks to protect their, to conceal their identity. Here's the truth. The Sheriff's Department down in North Carolina isn't enforcing that law because they know if they take those masks off, damn near everybody under it will is employed by the Sheriff's Department. <laughs> okay. Half the damn sheriff's department is the Proud Boys. That's why they letting them keep the keep them damn ass on. Hell, the person who's writing the order saying they ain't going to enforcement is probably in the meeting with the mask on his damn self. Now this goes on down in North Carolina. Now, you know, if I was a, you think of me and uh you know, you and you stepchild, uh o King Johnny. Um, A taste to consider, you know, if if we was to show up to the local city council meetings with with masks on, you know, I put on a red, black and green mask. And, you know, I got on my Malcolm X t-shirt and, you know, some black leather gloves. You can't see who I am. And I'm in there just, you know, not even saying anything. You think we'd be allowed in there? You you think we'd be allowed in in, in, in the meeting masked up? Can't see who I am? (laughs) Full full ski mask and tactical gear. I doubt it. Since we're talking about white supremacists, Peyton Gendron, the mass murderer who plotted, planned and orchestrated the shooting at the Tops grocery store of black people and live streamed it while he was committing the murder, was sentenced this week.
6: And we begin with the emotional hearing in a Buffalo courtroom, the white supremacist who killed 10 black people at a neighborhood supermarket last May, hearing from the families of his victims, confronting him with their pain and anger before he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. At one point, a grieving family member rushing forward, trying to reach the gunman seated at the defense table, court officers jumping in to hurry the gunman away. The outpouring of emotion over that carefully planned massacre Peyton Gendron drove more than 200 miles to that black community wearing body armor and live streaming the attack. In a brief statement, he apologized, acknowledging he killed his victims because they were black. Strong words from Judge Susan Egan telling Gendron he deserved no mercy, no understanding, no second chances. And as she sentenced him, Judge Egan described each of his victims, the lives they led and who they left behind. Gendron had pleaded guilty in order to save his life, but he could still face the death penalty when he's tried on federal crimes. ABC's senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky leads us off from Buffalo. Tonight,
9: the pain of that racist attack at a Buffalo supermarket roared into court as families of the 10 black men and women shot dead face their loved one's killer. <laughs> A spectator lunging at peyton gendron deputies rushing him out of the courtroom his sentencing hearing paused until order was restored
7: i understand the anger but we cannot have that in the courtroom
9: the dramatic interruption coming as the sister of 72 year old victim Catherine massey pointedly addressed the shooter
1: that didn't hurt anybody that ain't fair you're gonna come to our city
2: and decide you don't like black people man you don't know a damn thing about black people we're
9: human Nine months after Gendron opened fire at the top supermarket in a well planned attack, the emotional wounds are still raw for Wayne Jones, remembering his 65 year old mother, Celestine Cheney.
1: While I was writing this, tears fell from my eyes, thinking about what a beautiful person he took.
9: And with Gendron watching passively in an orange jumpsuit, the widow of top security guard, 55-year-old Aaron Salter, who was hailed a hero for facing down the shooter, explaining why she wore red and black.
0: Red for the blood that he shed for his family and for his community. And black, because we are still grieving. I'm very sorry.
9: Afterward, the shooter briefly apologizing.
0: I did a terrible thing that day. I shot and killed people because they were black.
9: But relatives and prosecutors doubting his sincerity.
1: I firmly do not believe that that was from his heart.
0: With
9: Gendron pleading guilty to domestic terrorism motivated by hate, the judge sentenced him to the mandatory life in prison with no chance at parole.
7: There is no place for you or your ignorant, hateful, and evil ideologies in a civilized society. There can be no mercy for you, no understanding, no second chances
6: Aaron Koturski joining us now from Buffalo and Aaron, we saw just how painful it was for these
0: There you go Peyton Dendron, sentenced to life without parole. He's also facing a federal hate crime charge in which he in which he could possibly get the death penalty if convicted. I hope and I prayed that they could have got to him and tore his ass up in that courtroom. I hoped and i prayed that so many people was jumping on dude that the bailiffs wouldn't be able to subdue them all they should have beat his ass to death in that damn courtroom that's what should have happened but once again well but peyton gendron he's still alive you heard him apologizing oops my bad y'all i'm sorry i i shouldn't have did that i shouldn't have drove to that grocery store and kill people just cause they was black and, and live streamed it on my on my Twitch account, me shooting black people. I shouldn't have did that yo. I'm 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 so sorry. And he got what he got what he should've got. He he deserved that life sentence. And once again, his victims are dead. He's still alive. Cops ain't shoot him. Even though he's online murdering people like he's playing a a a, a damn video game. In real life, cops didn't beat him to death. Cops didn't put they knee on his neck. Isn't it interesting how when the perp is white, police know how to bring them in, bring them in alive. They ain't scared for their lives Then It's not a life and death situation then. They can they they can arrest them and, and, and bring them in without casualty. I want y'all to put y'all listening ears on for this next clip because I found this. Particularly tell it This is an interview Courtesy of the cows That college professor and author Dr. G Sue Carson Did Now this woman's a college professor In Georgia She writes books on racism She was asked because In many spaces she is the only She is a white woman And in many spaces she's the only white woman Doing counter racist work you know She works amongst, like I said, she writes books on racism, she's a college professor, she's a PhD and in many times she's the only white woman in the room. So she was asked the question, has she ever come across any black people who she thought hated white people? Listen to her response and listen to her explanation.
1: Uh, in all of that, did you meet any non-white people uh, who just, hey, I hate white people on site. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. There's nothing you can do that's going to change my mind. I hate white children, white old people, white women, white men, white gay people, straight people. If you're white, pfft, no can do. Did you meet? Have you ever in your life met any non-white people with that perspective? They hate anyone white? I,
4: I'm thinking of a couple of men who worked in a mentoring program for non-white youth in um, Austin when I was a doctoral student. I don't know that they ever said that they hated white people. Um, they were definitely very pro-black about just about everything they did um, in ways that the university institutional mentoring system was uncomfortable with, and that was run by a biracial black-white professor, who this work I still respect a great deal. Um, So, I think they likely hated white people, but I never heard them say as much,
1: so I don't want to misrepresent. When you say pro-black, can you give us specific examples (laughs) of what they said or did that was classified as pro-black, so-called.
4: Um. I mean, I it, this is foggy, so I'm I'm doing my best to jog my memory. Um. I remember them talking a lot about their communities taking care of themselves, having the resources to do so. Uh, particularly when working with mentoring uh, middle school youth. Uh, who were predominantly, if not entirely, black, um, that there was great reason for them to have pride in their their histories and cultures, um, and that they didn't, this is probably the key here, that there was no reason to force them to assimilate to the system. I think that's per- perhaps the most telling for me.
1: Did they, I don't know, did they make jokes about White people or say nasty things about white people? Not that I recall. Okay. Were they hostile to you? Like, did they see you close or, or coming by or something and try and, you know, trip you or say ugly things to you?
4: Absolutely not.
1: No. no. Okay. Okay. Well, did you Were you aware of them mistreating any white people, like trying to mess them over on the job, or you know, key their car, or I don't know, <laughs> what uh, anything you can think of. I don't about?
0: know. I know. What in the hell is this woman talking about? This woman is. Look, this ain't no right wing Trump supporter from the middle of nowhere. This woman considers herself a liberal. She's a PhD. She's a college professor. She write she writes books on racism. But when the host asked her, has she ever been in a situation where non-black people basically say like, hey, we hate hate white folks. Have you ever been around some white hating black people? She said, well, two guys come to mind. When I was at the University of Texas, we had a mentoring program and it was these two pro-black men, whatever that means, who volunteered who wanted to mentor black children. And they wanted to teach black children that they have a history that they could, these are her words. They have a history that they could be proud of, that they should be taking advantages of the resources in their community. And you don't have to assimilate to the white power structure in order to succeed. She says she suspected them of hating white people. (laughs) And when the host asked, well, did these two men that you label as pro-back, did they say anything against white people? Did they attack white people? Did they do anything against white people at all? She said no. <laughs> I just suspected them of not liking white people because they wanted to help black children and teach them to that they have a proud history. <laughs> and that they should be taking advantage of the resources in their community and they don't have to you know assimilate to the white power structure in order to succeed what is this woman talking about what is she talking about look the Jewish man has a very tight knit community he sent his kids to Jewish schools he shop in Jewish businesses he predominantly stays in all Jewish neighborhoods the Jewish community in America insulates themselves around the around their people nobody accuses them of preaching hate the Arab man does the same thing the Asian man does the same thing people who classify themselves as Latino do the same thing nobody accuses them of preaching hate but anytime black people want to teach black children that they could be proud of who they are and that we could take advantage of the resources that we have in the black community and we could, you know, work amongst ourselves to build ourselves up, then that's preaching hate. You get that? Here's, here, here, here's what I've observed. White folks think that way because that's how they think. The white community, by and large, they think in order for us to get ahead, in order for us to take advantage of the resources, In order for us to make our communities great, we have to hate everybody else. We have to hate everybody else to get ahead. That's how they think. These two black men who volunteered to mentor these children, she gave no evidence that they hate white people at all. They just love their people. But in the mind of a white supremacist, if you love your people and you black, you must hate white people. I've heard it for years. When everybody, every other group understands I can love who I am without hating anybody else. But when you're black, if you love your people, you got to hate white folks. That's how white people think, because that's how they feel. That's how they feel. They feel like in order for me to love my people, in order for me to love people who look like me and put my people ahead, I have to hate you. That's very telling. And this woman, again, is considered a so-called liberal, college professor, writes books on racism. And she herself Showed her own racist views. Once again, this has been another episode of the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast. Thanks for listening.